Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. We are hunters, anglers, riders, and sometimes chefs. Our passion for the outdoor lifestyle motivated the foundation of Harvesting Nature, which serves as a media outlet built to inspire and educate the outdoor expert, and novice alike. Our podcast focuses on the technical side of cooking wild fish and game while also incorporating adventures and lessons learned from our pursuit of wild meat. Join us on our journey of harvesting nature. Hey everyone, this is uh, Justin with the Harvesting Nature Wild Fish and Game podcast. We're recording remotely this week. Uh, We're down in the Everglades in South Florida doing a bit of hunting or what we like to call hunting, although I don't know how productive we were yesterday or how we will be uh, tomorrow. But we came here to the Everglades Sportsman's and Conservation Club and met with an awesome group of of individuals that uh, we wanted to bring on the podcast so we can share some of their history and stories with you. Uh, But first off, we'll do kind of an introduction. You guys know me, uh, Justin Townsend, the Editor-in-Chief of Harvesting Nature, uh, just kind of bringing you the same wild adventure stories and uh, recipes uh, that you like to see and hear now. And uh, we've got a couple others, so we'll go around. Hello, my name is Colin. I'm also in the Coast Guard and stationed in Key West with uh, Dustin and Justin here. And uh, I consider myself a pretty novice and learning hunter still, but I'm excited to be out here and to learn from everybody. Thanks for having me on. And this is uh, Dustin, I'm coming back for the third time with you, um, contributor, uh, looking forward to keep going on these little adventures, I learned a lot today, which I can't wait to talk about, and then go into some recipes with you. And hi, my name is Harry Pickering, I'm the Wildlife Conservation Chairman for the Everglades Conservation and Sportsman's Club, here to talk about a little bit of our history. Great, and so... Uh, just as Harry said, we want to touch on some awesome work that these guys are doing and their history down here in the Everglades. Um, they've been around for about, what, 70 years now? 
since 1950. 1950. Okay, so roughly in that area. And uh, for those that haven't been to the Everglades or know where it is, basically uh, it encompasses the southern southwest tip of Florida, you would say? Correct. And uh, it's a very unique ecosystem. Nothing like it exists in the United States, uh, anywhere else. And it's gone through a lot of environmental and conservation changes throughout the years, uh, which makes it really a hot spot for both people local to Florida and then those uh, that have that eye for environmental concerns, conservation concerns, hunting, fishing, uh, all those things here. And uh, there's some really great stuff going on here that uh, I'll go ahead and let, let Harry highlight. Okay. Well, beginning in the early 1950s, our club's greatest contribution to wildlife conservation included a number of projects to improve wildlife habitat, including the stocking of big game animals and birds, controlling the number of predators, and cooperating with wildlife officers in the enforcement of game laws. The first club project addressed a major concern for providing water for wildlife during periods of drought. Droughts in the early 1950s resulted in a noted decrease in the alligator population, which resulted in fewer gator holes to sustain a variety of wildlife. In 1953, the club relocated approximately 30 alligators throughout the Big Cypress to even out the distribution so the gators could excavate a broader pattern of permanent watering holes. In the 1960s, the club helped the Florida... Freshwater Fish and Game Commission in a big game stocking effort, including the release of deer, wild turkey, and wild hogs. In the early 1960s, 20 Texas deer were released north and south of Monroe Station. Throughout the 1960s, the club participated in a five-year program of capturing deer from other wildlife management areas and making yearly releases into the Big Cypress. In 1969 and 1970, the club attempted to help game populations by controlling predators. A number of bobcats were live trapped and removed from the Big Cypress. Drought conditions recycled nearly 20 decades, nearly two decades later, so the club began a waterhole blasting project in 1971. Twenty waterholes, one section per land, were blasted one mile east and west of the Range Line 33, north and south of Monroe Station. The holes start five miles north of Monroe Station and follow the range line for 15 miles. In addition, a cluster of 10 to 15 holes were blasted two miles south of Monroe Station along the same range line and two miles east of Loop Road. The watering holes averaged 12 to 15 feet in diameter and 6 to 9 feet deep. During periods of low water and drought, the watering holes supported large concentrations of wading birds and numerous alligator nests. Beginning in 1974, with the creation of the Big Cypress National Preserve, the National Park Service gradually assumed the role of wildlife and habitat management. The last club project following the creation of the preserve was assisting the Game Commission in relocating 20 deer from Merritt Island to the area of Monroe Station. Since then, the focus of our club's wildlife conservation efforts has been centered on promoting recreational access, involvement in the wildlife management area, and protecting the rights of sportsmen. The club is affiliated with the Everglades Courting Council and the National Rifle Association, and club representatives serve on the National Park Service Off-Road Vehicle Advisory Committee. To date, our club members host an annual cleanup along Loop Road and on 
and on designated off-road trails. So we initially came out here earlier today and, and met with you and got a cool tour of the facility here, which to give everybody the picture, just kind of geographically. So you mentioned Monroe Station there. So the club's situated just south of Monroe Station, uh, which is on Highway 40. Loop Road is 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 uh, County Road 94. Okay. And uh, we're just south of U.S. Highway 41, Tamiami Trail. Okay. So we're about... If you're going from Miami, heading west to Naples, we're about two-thirds of the way across the state. Okay. And um, just to kind of paint the picture of where we are sitting right now, uh, we're staring at a crackling fire. Uh, some of us are staring. Two of us are staring at it. You guys have your back to it. Uh, there's a swamp buggy, which we'll talk a little bit about later because we just had a ride on one. It's my first time. It's a whole other animal. Yeah. It was uh, it was quite the experience. Um but to definitely loop back around, um, mentioning some great conservation pieces. So the deer population in the area has kind of struggled, waxed and waned over the years. And um, I think now it's fair to say that everybody we've talked to here at the club and then when we were out hunting today, it's kind of leaning towards a, uh, a period where there's not as many deer as there is there once were sort of as these conservation efforts grew and we saw their their maximum efforts essentially correct the uh the number of deer harvested each year has gone down steadily for the last 5 to 10 years uh gradually but it is going it's the harvest is getting fewer and fewer deer now do you think that's more because of the the habits and behaviors of, of people or other natural predators it's got to do with high water. Uh, we've had a number of hurricanes in 2017 and 2018, um, and has to do with predators, you know, the pythons that everybody's heard about. The habitat just doesn't support just so many different stressors. A sustainable amount amount of game population. And the the habitat itself, the Big Cypress Wildlife Management Area or Preserve is it's it's such a huge chunk of the area um and just to kind of drive to give you perspective of driving so we started on the easternmost tip of it today on the south drove all the way to the western side and it probably took us what about 30 45 minutes yeah probably about 45 minutes and then we turned to the north and ran up to the north crossing uh i-75 and then there, it, it still took us about another 30 minutes. So you can imagine traveling at 55, 60 miles an hour. You're looking at it's several miles wide. And it's divided up into several units amongst that, which have different uh, game management procedures and policies and uh, directives that help the Park Service and the FWC manage the population here. But all these other outside factors are sort of coming and playing into it with environmental concerns, with the introduction of invasive species. All these things are affecting um, the population of deer here, which is, is disheartening to hear because from a lot of Florida hunters you hear, oh, there's a struggle with, with big game hunting, you know, quote unquote, we'll say like Western thought of big game hunting, uh, whitetail hunting, uh, wild pig populations are out of control in some areas, in control in some areas, which this is an area to highlight the conservation efforts to eradicate 
the wild pig. I think there was a lot of of historical trends where people were um, getting rid of these pigs on you know as many numbers as they can, and now you know going around the park today and then talking with other people like we're not seeing any sign we're not seeing any pig people are like they're not here like they used to be and and you can see the frustration on their face too you know they they're just people are confused well and it's an interesting kind of paradox or conundrum or however we want to call it because uh, I mean the goal of the wild pig program was to eradicate the wild pigs destroying people's destroying people's crops but at the same time now that it's been successful and there aren't as many pigs around, people who are like who are like us who come up for the recreation and the hunting, looking for wild pigs, uh, they're not able to be found. So it's kind of a uh, catch twenty two. So and in some places, it's it's been ingrained in the culture. Like here, you guys have the uh, the wild pig roast that you do every year. It's, so it began as a wild pig roast, and now it has evolved into something different, uh, which we'll, we'll touch on the event and uh, kind of give a plug for that here a little later. But just really curious, the whole thought of like hunting and fishing in the Everglades, to me, I always pictured in my mind coming to South Florida, going to Key West, like we zipped over to uh, the National Park, all that down south, and it just put a different mental image in my head of when we came to Big Cypress. Um, And to see and hear how the club has been involved in a lot of conservation efforts over the year, even establishing. So a lot of the land, who controlled a lot of the land before the the state took it over and turned it into the preserve? Well, there was private property and, and also a lot of land owned by the state of Florida. At In the 1950s, the state of Florida also entered a interagency, not a, 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 an agreement with local landowners and ranch owners uh, to form the first wildlife management area, the state wildlife management area back in the 1950s called the Big Cypress Wildlife Management Area. And that was the predecessor to the Big Cypress National Preserve. And so something interesting I learned today is that in the preserve itself, there still exists chunks of private property that are only accessible via the, the off-road vehicle trails. Um, and I think it, it was explained to me most clearly is if you, you had someone who had deeded property, it was deeded by uh, the county, then whenever they formed the preserve, you got to your land was reduced, given to the preservation, but you were still allowed to keep like three acres. Right. 1974, when the Congress passed the the uh, act, the public law creating the Big Cypress National Preserve. Part of the the act included that any landowners would be allowed to keep three acres of land, as long as that land they had a deed to that land and it was and it was recorded on the county tax rolls. So any land uh, that was on the tax rolls prior to 1974. In the Big Cypress National Preserve at that time, landowners were allowed to keep three acres. There is another area that was added uh, in the 1980s called the Big Cypress Additions Unit. And that's a different date. I I forget exactly what the date is, but it was like 1980 or close to 1980, where any landowner in that the Additions Unit was allowed to keep three acres of land. So if you had a camp and 
you know, was recorded on the uh, on the uh, tax rolls, you're allowed to keep three acres. Any of the trespass camps, there were a lot of camps out here where uh, sportsmen just erected a camp and hunted out of that out of that camp. Those camps were destroyed. Okay, and so the existing three acres that you see, a lot of that your members uh, have deeded to, and they have access to that kind of right. through the management system of the club. Um, looking back at the numbers, uh, I'm curious to hear some of the harvest numbers that that you have. 2016, there there was over 100 bucks harvested, but then we had Hurricane Irma, and we had uh, horrific flooding in the Big Cypress and the Everglades, and also part of archery season was canceled because of the storm. And there, that year, in 2017-2018, uh, there was only 67 bucks harvested. This year, I, I don't know what the tally is, um, but it's probably online to be at least that. Sure. And so looking at uh, why we're only highlighting the buck numbers is there's a restriction on within Big Cypress and this zone, uh, uh, an antler restriction that is uh, very specific on what you can harvest. So that's also limiting on number to help raise population so they don't allow does to be taken. They have an early season uh, quota management, which is Florida's way to uh, regulate early harvests. And so they you enter drawing, much like you do in the western states, to get early access, usually like first harvest uh, picks on those bucks that you're going with. And that helps, I think, helps keep the number low, but also regulate and population growth so that... Well, the opening weekends of of general gun is always the heaviest hunting pressure. So there's quota permits issued for the first nine days of hunting season in the Turner River unit. Okay. So you have to apply for a quota permit. If you don't have the quota permit, you got to wait nine days, and then you can then you can access uh, the big cypress to hunt. So difference? Do you know difference in success rates as far as the guys coming or not guys individuals coming in on that first nine days versus you know later in the season? Like we're in the last week of the season right now. It ends. Uh, January 1st season closes uh, but we've had you know since before that early period people have been in and out of the woods and talking with the check-in station here probably lowest lowest he's seen in three years yes but uh, archery and muzzleloader if you combine archery and muzzleloader together they probably outnumber the number of bucks that were taken during general gun so there's there's a, there's a if you if you get a head start and get your stand out in the woods, and and you're hunting early in the, earlier in the year. Um, archery and muzzleloader, uh, you stand a good, good, sh- uh, decent shot at harvesting a buck. Okay, so can you explain uh, to everyone and and to us a little bit, kind of the process? So we were out today on one of the roads. Uh, just north of where we're camping at and walking. We passed a lot of the off-road vehicles and stuff. And those guys, some of them had stands. Some looked like they were just cruising around, sort of, quote-unquote, like road hunting, just looking for animals and then would move off the road and sort of pursue them. But what's the the normal uh, method of, of hunting here? Well, well the average hunter um, who has an off-road vehicle will 
depending on whether it's an ATV or a UTV or a swamp buggy, uh, they will travel back into the backcountry as far as they can go and then walk off the off-road trail and uh, start scouting. You know, of course, you, when you start scouting, just like any other area you hunt in the United States, you want to look for game trails and tracks. And if you can zero in on some game trails and tracks, you know, I like to try to find several intersecting tracks. Sometimes you can find, you know, two or more game trails that intersect. And if you see fresh tracks, you know where to start. And then you start expanding your search looking for scrapes and rubs. And if you do find scrapes and rubs, then you you set up in that area. But what the problem is in the front country, there's so much hunting pressure where the off-road trails are. Um, unless you get back in the back country more than a mile off of the trails or six, eight, ten miles back, you're gonna you're gonna be walking over each other. Uh, tree stands everywhere, hunters and vehicles. And it's it's not easy country to move around in either. No. Like it's it's pretty and, thick. And there's only a limited number of trails and that's the problem. You know, that's leads to uh high concentration on the number of hunters along the off road vehicle trails. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Do you think people hunting from primarily walking in that short distance to... Uh, from the trails and then the possibly like an increased amount of off-road vehicles throughout the years has, as it's moved deer and deer have relocated, that that's contributed to the drop in, in harvest? I don't know. Okay. I mean, it. I, I think it, it could be considered one of the factors. I mean, there's many other, and, and playing this being well, such a... Years ago, secondary trails were open. Uh, but then, then some environmental groups filed a lawsuit against the National Park Service, and there was a, there was a settlement agreement which never came to fruition. But the lawsuit kind of came to a conclusion with the Park Service uh, agreeing that they would not pursue reopening any secondary trails. So you just had the primary off-road vehicle trails, and and that's leads to that. Super concentration of hunters in the woods. I think we saw some of those today in the closed trails, marked with either a red or an orange tag. And yep. Yeah, so we were looking at some of those as there might be some good areas to go out and scout and then come to find out they're closed. And, you know, we don't want to be trespassing where we're not supposed to. Yeah, I mean, we, we traveled in about three miles today by foot. Three before, or four, yeah. Yeah, before we decided to turn around. And it was, uh, you know, right now it's it's almost January. It was probably high of 82 today. Yeah, roughly. somewhere around that. Uh, humidity was probably at 70%. Rain showers throughout the day. So it's a uh, even late season in South Florida. It's not easy hunting anything you do, um, which is very contrary to a lot. I think the way us three I know hunt, you know, Colin hunting recently, most in Colorado, Dustin in Missouri, and myself in Wyoming. Well, you know, it's like it's a whole other animal hunting out here. 
when you go to like the southwest, you can do a lot of spot and stocking, uh, set up that way, get to an area, do a lot of glassing, um, and then go from there. You go up to, let's say, where I, I hunt in Missouri. There's a lot of just, you look for your trails, you find everything, and you set up a stand and wait. Out here, you got to go find it, and it's not easy. Yep. And, and that's why, I mean, if you haven't heard of these swamp buggies, it's one of the most vital tools of getting you out there. And this is a, they're on a, a whole new level. Um, so a swamp buggy is basically, the best way to describe it is like a small, skeletalized monster truck. It, it, it's souped up. It, uh, like if you just imagine a pontoon boat top on a monster truck bottom. Looks and like something out of Mad Max. Th- there's there's no regulations. <laughs> every each and every single one of them is it's like a, a thumbprint. Like it, it, everyone is different, it, and it's truly amazing. And it's one of the most fun things we've done. We just went out and uh, you were kind enough to give us a ride Wait, on those. That was great. Well, there is some regulation. Uh, you can't have tires. You can't have chains on the tires, and the tires have to be a minimum of ten inch width on the ground. Okay. It's the National Park Service that regulates right. that, right? Because you have to have the permit in order to get right. into the backcountry. And uh, so you'll see some photos on our Instagram as we kind of toured around today. We snapped some photos of some of the swamp buggies, which we'll post, and, and you can see the, the creative, artistic flair of, a, of an Everglades swamp buggy, which I think is really cool because the way it's described, the engine is sort of encapsulated so that water can't intrude and into the engine and prevent it from running, which is really awesome because people also think of, you know, the Everglades and think flooded constantly. Here, I think we're in the driest part of the year. Um, well, coming into the drier part of the year. And in the summer, when it's heavy rains, you're the water's rising, but you still have the ability to use these, these swamp buggies. And then there's the holes. You always got to contend with, the uh, sloughs, every time you you come across a slough, that area will be lower elevation than, the, than the, say, the prairie. And so you've got, you know, some, you know, high water areas that you have to traverse through as you, as you move from, you know, through the preserve from slough to slough across prairies and across pine islands and then back into a slough and so forth. It's really the terrain here, being on the ground, because we looked at it uh, via like Google Earth and Onyx Maps, and you see kind of just a, you can tell there's clusters of trees, clusters of pines, maybe cypress, but you can't really see the contour, which isn't as as great just looking at it straight as you would see. I mean, because I think we looked at one point today and we were like 10 feet above sea level, but even that area during the rainy season, could have water in it at 10 feet above. Yeah, we were walking on prairie grasses and open prairie fields with uh, clear crawfish shells in oh, it, yeah. snail shells in it. I mean, you can definitely see where the water line was, but there's nothing to be found there right now. Yeah, and coming across, we saw very little sign for deer as we were moving around. Um, some buck tracks we followed for a while, uh, but they kind of dipped into some pines and... Some bear sign, right? Bear sign, yeah, with some bear scat, which is bears are prevalent here. Yep. Yeah, the big cypress, uh, bear hunting is illegal in Florida. Yeah. There was a, a few years, uh, uh, there was one year that it was opened up in the last five years, but then prior to that, it hadn't been open for 15 or 20 years. But yes, there's an abundance of bear in the big cypress not to preserve. Now, let me ask you this. I've seen a lot of signs for panthers. 
How how big of a problem is that? The the roadkill is is the is the biggest problem. I mean, yeah, panthers are nocturnal. Very few people ever will see a panther during their lifetime. Uh, but uh, the problem is, you know, the superhighway and the interstate. You know, uh, animal crossing the highway. You know, they they have no defense, and you know, there's there's a uh, I, don't, I don't know what the roadkill is, but there's you know several dozen panthers killed every year by uh, motor vehicle collisions. And they're federally protected here, right? Yep. So in a lot of other states, the state may have protections, but I think this is one of the most unique yep. places where they're federally protected um, due to their unique. Yep. Yeah, it's a subspecies of the western mountain lions. So, so you said maybe 10 or 12 road kills a year involving Florida panthers? No, no, probably more than that, several dozen. Oh, wow. So that's a, I mean, just from our basic research today, well, looking I, it up, that's a pretty significant amount. Oh, okay. That's a pretty significant amount of their population that, gets, that uh, falls to roadkill. And I think, so we were driving on the eastern side, or sorry, the western side of the preserve. There's like big high fences. And um, uh, a lot of signs up that saying, you know, there's the wildlife corridor. They have underpasses, uh, just like in a lot panther of panther crossing, panther crossing, bear crossing, um, which would help alleviate. Because the other places where we didn't see it, too, even alligators. Like we saw, um, Dustin, you were commenting on the number of alligators. Yes, there's a, a large amount of alligators. <laughs> a large amount of large alligators. Yes, yeah, I mean, we're talking little Godzilla's everywhere. Yeah, the wildlife crossings uh, under the highways do work. They're they're effective. Absolutely, I and I've seen them. You know, in the western states, uh, a lot of the states are beginning to implement them and seeing the positive results here as well. Um, we even went through on so the Bear Island unit. They have a an access gate, but it's still a high fence gate, and they're like, "Visitors are welcome, but please close the gate behind you." And that helps. So the areas where you're not seeing those highway crossings, like I think roadkill-wise, we saw alligators, we saw uh, other slew of animals in there. And I think having those higher fences kind of around the area, and people think a lot of times a negative connotation when it comes to the high fences and sort of keeping animals in. But in this case, it's kind of doing them good because it's protect. It's taking very delicate species. Um, and protecting them from probably one of their biggest predators, which is, you know, vehicles on the road who, you know, just happen to be traveling along. And I'd like to say, like, for anyone who, you might not even be interested in hunting in the Everglades, but you still got to come out here and check it out. Um, it's just wonderful seeing these, these animals in their natural habitat. Uh, I'm talking 12-foot alligators, maybe even bigger, sitting on the side of the road. Uh, it's just it's something else down here. Well, it's beautiful, the terrain and the habitat the and the amount of, wildlife in terms of birds i mean it's a bird watcher's paradise and and uh and small animals also uh like i mentioned earlier today i where my tree stand is in the stair steps unit there's a fox squirrel's nest right behind my tree stand always see a big cypress fox squirrel which is a, a, a species of concern and uh, just some very unique animals. I mean, it's it's uh, animals and bird life. It's just it's it's beautiful. And the sunrises, the sunsets are gorgeous. But you got to contend with the the heat and the bugs and the mosquitoes and 
hunt, hunting during archery and muzzleloader, I not only uh, carry in my backpack a thermocell, but I also have a full bug, bug tamer suit, oh. uh, both pants and, and jacket, which is a mesh uh, that's covered by a mosquito net. And so I, so I use a bug tamer suit, my thermocell, and mosquito repellent, and, and full gloves. During archery season, do you see them? Do they come in like clouds? Or? Well, it's it's just you know it's a, you can't avoid them, I and mean, they, they get in between your eyeglasses and your eyes, and so yeah, you, you gotta protect yourself against the bugs during archery. First, first couple of weeks of muzzleloader until the water levels drop, and then the, this year we've been lucky. This year, halfway through muzzleloader season, the bugs weren't too bad. Now, one thing we're talking about in a little while is be uh, we're going on to invasive species. What would you say we're talking about the pythons today? Right? How big of a problem is that? Well, it's huge. I mean, out here at the hunting club, our caretaker uh, ran over one on our access road and uh, and killed it within after he ran over it, and another club member killed one. The majority of the of the uh, Burmese pythons. And there's a few other subspecies, but the majority of them are in the Florida Everglades in the sawgrass. And the uh, state of Florida, both the uh, South Florida Water Management District and the Florida Wildlife Commission, uh, they have teams, and there's over 50 licensed, you know, persons that have the license to, to capture the python and then dispatch it. And I believe the last that I read, it's, it's well over 3,000 have been killed. Uh, since the program started uh, years ago. But each snake, as I understand it, uh, each female can lay up to 80 to 100 eggs a year. That's insane. That's so many eggs. There's all sorts of programs going on. There's this one program based out of Naples. What they do is they they call it the sentinel snake, the sentinel snake. They, They put in transmitters on the females, and and uh, and they track the females, and during the breeding season, uh, the idea is to capture as many males as you can that are getting to these pods for breeding. We saw some of the pictures because uh, we were talking when we checked in. You have to check in each morning here, or check in before you go, like for several days. And they had photos of the trackers and like the red the red bands identifying the the females that have the tracking devices on them. And he's like, you know, you're free to shoot any of the others that you see out just the ones with the red bands don't do that because they have a specific season where they come out when i would say probably the the, they're mating and you said they harvest anywhere from up to 10 to 15 i've yet to see one i I can't wait to get my first python and and if you get one you 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 uh, record the gps coordinates take a picture and you send it to the uh, game commission web page and they send you a free T-shirt that says, I got one. <laughs> <laughs> we were talking, uh, I think we heard that, I think it was the Meteor podcast they were talking about. Or no, uh, Kyle's Week in Review, they were talking about the T-shirt. And uh, we were discussing it on the way up uh, from Key West as we were traveling. Well, I'd love to get one. I want to get the skin, and I wouldn't like to try some recipes. It's interesting that you say that because uh, just when we were out riding on the Swamp Buggy, our driver was talking about how... Uh, you know, since the decline of the deer population and the wild hog populations and, and the harvests have been pretty low in the fa- past few years, 
that the uh, his next big trophy is going to be a, a Burmese python, which is interesting because it's invasive and it's a pest and it's a nuisance to everybody. So, so you mentioned that you want to get one and, and you'd like to eat it. So we have an invasive problem too down in the Keys. Uh, we have right. iguanas everywhere. Yep, massive, yep. and they get they get big. Um, yep, and you'll see some of the pictures on, on later on on the website. Pellet guns. Yeah, pellet guns. Uh, bow. Yeah, you can. They're big enough. You can hit them with a bow. Um, but what we do is we can eat them as well. Yeah. So what we do is uh, we'll take the iguanas, and uh, one of my favorite recipes is uh, iguana tacos. Wow. And so that that'll be posted on the web page oh as well. Oh my god. Yeah. So uh, it's it's pretty simple to make. Now what you do is you you boil it for an hour. After, right. After taking it, right, you skin it, and these things are big enough. If you want to try something, experiment, try. Yeah. Do you have a picture, Dustin? Uh, I do have a picture. You should, yeah. you should. Yeah. Show, show us the picture so we can we'll see. We'll post this on the web web page as well. You'll see it go up with the recipe. Down there, when they get big, they get they get nice and orange. So wow. you can see that thing oh is my God. the body of it is almost the length of my torso. Jesus. Um, so they're they're pretty big. They're heavy. Nice yeah, there's a good amount of meat that comes off it too. Obviously the tail, but when they get that big, you can also take down the back. Um, and uh, what you do is you boil it for about an hour, or at least an hour, I should say. And uh, once you do that, you want to take a fork and, and kind of shred the meat out, right? And I like the meat all down the backbone, and then um, the the first part of the tail right. is that's the best of it. Um, and then what you do is you take a nice pan. I, I prefer cast iron, but it uh, doesn't really matter. I take a pan, and I take coconut milk, right? I take right. mango slices cut up, and I, and I continue to cook it in the pan. Um, so now I have my coconut milk in there. I add a little bit of Cajun spice and some fresh cracked pepper, um, and I cook that for about 10 minutes. Huh. Um, after I've done that, then uh, what I'm going to do is uh, I take a regular small little tortilla, right? I take it out with the. It still has the, the sauce and the, and the mango slices. I add it to the tortilla, and then I um, give it a little bit of uh, avocado slices, uh, cut thin, a little bit of parsley, and then you can uh, shred some cheese of your choice on it. And I tell you what, it's it's fantastic. Wow, it's surprising. Uh, I'm sure you could do this in, uh, something similar with the uh, pythons out here too. I mean, reptile meat is pretty similar. It's either History Channel or. or um or National I think it's history. It's called Guarding the Glades, and the, the python hunter's name is Dusty Crumb. And so there's season two is starting, in, like, next week. And uh, and he and he's he has a couple recipes and has cooked python. I, uh, I heard it's turned into a very lucrative business, python hunting. Oh, yeah. Uh, I was seeing, was it the Forest, or not the Forestry Service, National Park Service is offering an hourly rate. Plus money right. paid by foot. Yeah, it, you know it's not a lot of money, but it's uh, just knowing that you're doing something to help the environment and Florida wildlife. Harry, what's the biggest alligator you've seen down here? I've seen so many. You know, I mean, you know, everywhere in Florida. So I, I don't know, twelve, thirteen feet, I guess. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't. I don't pay attention to them anymore, except for. One that I stepped over, uh, walking out of my tree stand. Uh, <laughs> one one morning, it was a little moonlight, little crescent moon, just a little bit of moonlight, and I was walking across the slough, and I stepped over this log, and I stepped over the log, and I thought for a second, I go, "Damn, that log wasn't there yesterday." And I turned back, and it was a freaking you know ten twelve foot alligator that wow. I stepped over <laughs> back up. And, and then another time I was out duck hunting and I was working my way, decided to take a shortcut to get to get across this cut canal. And uh, I got up on 
near the levee, and the, there was an area where the grass uh, was a little bit lower, and I stepped out, and the grass was mashed down, and I looked down, and I had stepped right in the middle of an alligator nest. And the first thing I was looking for was the female alligator. It was during nesting season, during duck season. And man, I I took off and I made it I made it across the cut to canal to the levee in like ten seconds. <laughs> <laughs> well, for the most part, other than nesting, uh, they're more afraid of us than we are of them. Is that correct? I don't know. That, I don't know, man. That, we saw that one today. That I don't know. Yeah, he got a little close, but for the uh, for the most part, it seems like they they just kind of mind did, their own business. Did I tell you we saw one today? Yeah, it was a little one. I think. Yeah. What's what's the rule of thumb? What's the rule? Is it a uh, number of inches between the nose and the eyes? Is about how many feet long it is? Wow. Yeah. Uh, so I, I don't think it was much. Maybe like nose to tail. Right. Maybe like five six inches. So right. I don't know. That still seems big in my head. But it uh, all I saw as we were walking, there was a small little pool on the side of the road, and I just see kind of, I don't see its body. I just see the tail slide in the water, and then his head pops up, and he starts like swimming towards us, and it's probably only about ten fifteen feet across this little. This little area, and um, then he disappeared. <laughs> we were like, ah, all right, we'll just keep walking. But it's something I've never, I don't encounter too much in the wild in, yeah. in most of the places. So it's unique. And coming coming here, you always have thoughts of like, oh, snakes, alligators, spiders, everything. But um, overall, not, not as, I don't want to say scary and sound like a wimp, but not as like, <laughs> not as threatening as what I would think. It's actually really peaceful here, which I like. And parts of it remind me uh, of where I'm from in Oklahoma, the prairie parts of it. And then you have little pockets of pines and other trees around and that sort of, you know, we don't have the flooding that would come in the summer, but that those very similar in my mind of like the rural parts where I grew up. It's all the swamp buggies and four-wheelers, ATVs that are departing the camp right now. So because we're we're still in an active camp, so everyone's leaving um, where we are right now, except for us. And it's very interesting to see those swamp buggies. I'm absolutely amazed. Love them. That ride was pretty incredible. I will have one one day. <laughs> are you gonna build one? Yeah, I'm pretty sure you could build one out of spare parts and. Uh, he said it's the same so the engine's the same height as a truck it's just it's it's cased and then they just raise it up and then attach the bed on there hey Dustin you got the fire over there you know what it's reminding That's reminds fire. me of what's it remind you of it reminds me of the Traeger cooking food on the Traeger right right nice smoky flavor and uh you recently had some I did and you know it was it was really good and I can't thank you enough for that um but more importantly, uh, I'm amazed by those those grills. Uh, it's been a while, so I've, I've been stuck in my ways. I got my old chamber smoker. Seems to always do me right. Even experimented with a little upright pellet smoker. Um, a little bit better. But then I saw this Traeger, and it's just fantastic. Precise, which is what's most important to me. Uh, in all the cooking I do and all the cooking I've done, it's been sort of a very dependable piece of equipment in my kitchen. Colin's also had an experience with a Traeger recently, too. Uh, yeah, this is true. Uh, a few months ago, I ended up having to cook a few pounds of meat for a wedding rehearsal dinner, and uh, it was all going to be cooked on the trigger. And uh, it was my first time using a trigger, and it was super easy to use. All I had to do was throw the meat on top, set the temperature, and uh, let it go from there, and, uh, and it turned out great. It was a huge hit. 
you know, my favorite thing about Trigger is? Tell me the Wi-Fi. Uh, the Wi-Fi is a great thing, but I like the pellets, the variety of pellets. Our local hardware store in Key West, and I think a lot of others in and around town, plus online too. I think Amazon, you can get them. They're affordable. Trigger. They're easy to find. There's like many, many different flavors, and it's great because you can pair different flavors of the pellets with different flavors of meats. And then in addition to that, Colin came over for Christmas dinner, and we had the wild game rub. It was yep. pretty incredible. We had that on uh, the goose. Yeah. And we also used the Saskatchewan seasoning. We used and that the salmon, on the right? salmon. Yeah, it was pretty good. So and then the ham too. Ham was in there also. The ham we put in there. We didn't use seasoning on the ham. We just smoked oh, no, it straight, no. which but came still, out yeah, fabulous. Came out. Excellent. And uh, just to be able to have a great piece of equipment like that in the kitchen is is awesome. And uh, I look forward to every day I get a chance to use it and find new ways to be creative with it. So, now to do closing, uh, we've talked a lot, touched some invasive species, we've talked about pythons, talked about hunting in the Everglades, uh, the Everglades Sportsman's Conservation Group, we are happy to have uh, Harry joining us today, uh, giving us the rundown on on what's going on here in the Everglades and, and hoping to inspire some new interest and some new attention and, and love and foster old attention and love uh, for this really awesome, unique place. So we'll just kind of go around and, and do uh, do takeaways. So, Colin, you go go first. You got uh, alibis, misfires, anything? Uh, no, not much. Uh, just kind of to reiterate what we said earlier, this is a, a really unique place, and it's unlike any place that I've ever hunted in. We usually have the mountains and some kind of hill or elevation to give yourself an advantage, and here it's it's really just you're on the same level as the environment, so you don't really have an advantage, uh, especially with the heat and the water and the different, how the land changes throughout the out the year. It's really challenging. And mosquitoes. <laughs> and mosquitoes. I think I've killed about 15 since I've been sitting here. So. <laughs> Harry, do you have any uh, last thoughts for us? Our club is hosting the 70th Annual Wild Hog Barbecue and Jamboree on Saturday, February 29th. It's going to be here at the Hunt Club on at Monroe Station on Loop Road, just south of Tamiami Trail, from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. We're going to have a live band. The band is Cowboy Up. Your admission includes a full meal, ribs, chicken, coleslaw, baked beans, and all the fixings. There's going to be lots of vendors. We're going to have lots of exhibitors. The Miccosukee Tribe of Indians will be here uh, with a food concession, uh, Indian fry bread, turnovers, lots of lots of stuff going on. We're going to have a turkey shoot. We'll have skeet shooting, free swamp, free swamp buggy rides yes. uh, throughout the property. We have 40 acres here. We'll take you on a long, uh, fun swamp buggy ride. We'll be on that tonight. It's totally worth it. That alone is worth coming out. Even that, compared with all the other great activities that are coming out, I think you'll we'll, we'll be here for sure. I think I'm gonna bring bring the the kiddo out and uh, the family and we'll yeah, this is gonna be a big year. We got a lot of big sponsors, um, and it should be a great time. We're expecting anywhere from 1,500 to 3,000 people. That's a lot. So if you get here, get here early. You know, so you can park up close. We will have shuttles running back and forth to. Uh, Pick up guests running up and down Loop Road to the gate, to the front gate. So please come out and join us. Nice. Dustin, last thoughts? Thanks for listening. Um, it was it was good to share this experience of hunting and exploring the Everglades with you. And I can't wait for our next adventure.
yeah, I'm uh I'm really excited that we got the opportunity to come here just for the weekend. Um, I'm a little saddened that it's the last week of deer season that we got to come down, but definitely have the opportunity to come next year, I think, and uh, hope to meet oh. up. Spring Gobbler. Spring Gobbler. That's yep. right. March. Small game. Duck February, season. March. Oh, yeah. yeah. So there's time. There's still time, and we're going to make it out. Uh, we were already talking today about what our next plans are going to be, and I'm pretty excited to get back out because I really enjoyed being here. I'm going duck hunting next and then spring gobbler. Nice. We got duck hunt, duck hunting coming up. And there you go. You hear the four-wheelers again. Like I said, we're sitting in an active camp. Everybody's out enjoying themselves. That's such a likely. satisfying noise. It is. Especially when it's a swamp buggy. So we're duck hunting too in January, which is going to be cool. That's going to be our next adventure. Hopefully uh have got a buddy out to come shoot a little film for us. Uh, but I just want to put a quick plug in for the podcast. Uh, thanks everybody who's been listening to us thus far, and we really appreciate your um, comments and support that have been coming in. If you have any questions, concerns, feedback, uh, fact checks, send it to what's cooking at harvestingnature.com, and we'll take a look at that, and we'll we'll speak to it on our next episode. And always, whatever podcast platform you're listening to this on. Uh, Be sure to subscribe and click those five stars. Give us a positive review if you like our content. Um, Once again, this is uh, the Harvest of Nature crew and Mr. Harry coming to you from the Everglades. Thursdays with Saltwater Experience, brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts, every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue, brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors, every Monday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.